Good morning. I know we have a lot of visitors with us this morning. We're so glad that you're here. To kind of catch you up to speed, we are involved in a series this year on Sunday mornings called the One Word Study. We asked our congregation to pick up a book. It's a devotional book that covers one word each day of the week from Monday through Friday. And then on that Sunday, we preach on that word. And those of you who are regular members here, you know that we're a little out of order with the word proclaim. The reason why, and because I, I felt like that this would be the most appropriate word for this day, because this is the day we kick off our preacher training camp. And so I hope you'll return this evening as uh, we have a special worship service. Jeremy Roberts is going to be here to kick it off for us, and the week is going to be a great week as we have our young men coming in from all over to learn the art of preaching. In fact, a couple of them are already here, and so hopefully you'll get a chance to meet them tonight, and you'll stay afterwards, hopefully, and have uh, a meal with us as we do some more meeting and greeting. You know, last summer, my family and I went back to the Holy Land, which is Arkansas, and <laughs> amen, and my, uh, my father, of course, is there. Libby's mother is there. And it's a nice, relaxing, cheap vacation. We do this every once in a while. There's no real schedule. We don't have to do anything. We can just kind of sit around and, and kind of uh, breathe a little bit, take a rest and a break from uh, our everyday routine. Zane and I, every time we go back, make it our mission to do a lot of fishing. My dad lives out in the woods, and he has a pond behind his house, a big enough pond that you can get in a boat and row out to the middle of it and do some pretty good fishing. In fact, he has a John boat that he's cut in half and welded together, which seats two people, and Zane and I get in this John boat, and we paddle out to the middle, and we, we began flinging a line and trying to catch something. The great thing about this pond is nobody fishes it, not even my dad. So you can catch a fish every cast. Every cast. And the fish are about this big. <laughs> so you'd take, it'd take about a million of them to make a meal, and even then you wouldn't want to clean them as small as they are. I actually told my dad, I said, I think you could put anything shiny on a hook and they would bite. And so to test that theory, I had some juicy fruit gum and I took the wrapper, the metal, the foil wrapper, and I put it on a hook and sure enough caught something. And so that tells you how hungry these little fish are. This past summer, Zane and I decided we were going to catch a monster fish. No more of dealing with these little fish. And we know there are some monsters in there because we've seen them over the years since 1993 that my dad has lived in this house. He's turned loose some huge fish. So we know that they're in there. So Zane and I go to Walmart, and we buy some pool noodles, if you know what those are. We chop them into thirds. We get some heavy-duty line, tie around them, get some treble hooks and some chicken liver, and we go out to the middle of the pond, and we throw those pool noodles out. We go back to the shore, and we sit, and we wait. It didn't take long. There was a big commotion. You see this darting across the water. Something grabs that pool noodle, takes it underwater, so we know we have a monster. And I looked at Zane, and I said, get in the boat. And so we paddle out there, and to me, this is the most exciting part. When you get up to that pool noodle, and it's spinning around, and you know you have something on the end of the line, but you don't know what you have. And so you start pulling the line up, excited about what's on the other end. So I get there, and I start pulling, and I can tell it's suctioning, so it's a catfish, and he's pretty big. I'm thinking probably at least 150 pounds, and so I'm pulling <laughs> as hard as I can. Little did I know, there's an underwater barbed wire fence. And this fish knew it, but I didn't. And he swam all the way over and got caught in that barbed wire fence and cut my line. And so Zane and I rode back to shore with nothing in our boat but disappointment. 
You know, every great fisherman has a one that got away story. You know it? How about you? Do you have a, a story about one that got away? I have a few. Let me tell you about another one. His name is David Peters. He was my uncle. My uncle David was a brilliant man, valedictorian of his class, perfect score on the ACT, goes to the University of Arkansas where he leaves his upbringing and his faith. He joins the Communist Party. He gets immersed in the drug culture. He goes on the run from the police, eventually is caught and arrested and does time in prison. He gets out of prison, cleans his life up, moves to Minnesota, attends the University of Minnesota and gets two advanced degrees and writes computer manuals for 3M Corporation. But all the years of drug abuse caught up to him. And he died in 2013 awaiting a liver transplant. Now before then, just months before, he had reached out to me. He had started asking questions of a spiritual nature, which was unusual because he had long claimed to be an atheist. And so I would email back to him or write back to him suggested readings, and I would answer his questions, but I never really made it a full priority. I thought about it. I had the best of intentions. I even thought it'd probably be a good idea to drive up to Minnesota. I hadn't seen him in a few years and just sit down and share the gospel with him because what's a drive to Minnesota if he converts to Christianity. But I didn't do that. And he passed away at the end of 2013. The only brother, only sibling of my mother who passed away a month later, another story of one that got away. My friends, there are people all around you who are going to hell if you don't do something. Do you care? That's the question. Does that bother you? Does it bother you that your cousin, your uncle, your aunt, your best friend, your co-worker, your mother or father maybe even, is going to spend eternity away from the Heavenly Father in a place that Jesus described where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth? Does that bother you? And if so, what are you going to do about it? You see... I don't have to tell you that the Great Commission has become the great omission in a lot of churches. You've heard the statistics. You've heard sermon after sermon talking about the need for evangelism. Maybe your church has shared strategies with you about how we can evangelize better. We've sang the songs, Rescue the Perishing, or You Never Mentioned Him to Me. We've read books or blog posts and things of that nature. Maybe the preacher has guilted you into feeling like you should do more. That's not my intention this morning, although if that works, great, but that's not my intention this morning. My goal is to bring to light how we as the church oftentimes are failing in our number one responsibility. You ever thought about that? For all of our talk about how we are the first church, that we are the church in the book of Acts, that we follow the Bible, that it is the authoritative word of God, and that we speak where the Bible speaks, and we are silent where it is silent, and we are the one true church, and yet you look at the church in the book of Acts, and that ain't us. Sorry, but it's not. We are not the church that we read about in the book of Acts. Because that church was a movement. And in many places today, the church is a monument. We have become stationary, and we are not moving. 
And if there's anything that we can see about the first church, we see that they were a people on the move. They weren't a building. They weren't an institution. They were a people who gathered and scattered. Throughout the New Testament, we see that the church was about making and growing disciples. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We beg you. We could go on, but hopefully you get the idea. The true church that we read about in the book of Acts knew that there was a time to gather and there was a time to scatter. You do realize that this, this building is not the church, right? You do realize that although we say it oftentimes, we're not going to church on Sunday morning. You are the church. You're the church when you're under this roof, and you're the church when you're out in the world around you. It's important that we understand who we are. There was a gentleman who was a phenomenal fisherman. Every time he went out to fish, he came back with hundreds of fish, which was illegal. And he became a, a, a known name around the community from far and beyond. People began to know this man as a phenomenal fisherman. What was he doing that he would catch hundreds of fish every time he went out? Word got to one of the game wardens, and he decided that he was going to investigate a little bit. And so he knocked on the man's door, and he said, I'd like to go out fishing with you the next time you go. And the man said, come on. And so they get in the boat, and they're going out into the middle of the lake. And the game warden noticed something funny. He noticed that the gentleman didn't have any fishing gear, only a duffel bag. No rod and reel, no tackle box, no bait, no nothing, just a duffel bag. And so he gets out into the center of the lake, and he pulls out a dynamite stick from the duffel bag, and he lights it, and he throws it in the water. It explodes, and hundreds of fish float to the top. And he just calmly gathers them in, puts them in the boat, while the game warden is sitting there astonished, incensed. And he says, do you know how many violations that is? Do you know how many rules you've broken? I'm going to write you so many citations, and about that time, the fisherman hands him a lit stick of dynamite and says, you going to talk or you going to fish? <laughs> and that's the question. That's the question that I have for you. Are you going to talk or are you going to fish? Because we're really good at talking, right? We talk a great game. We talk about how the church is to be the one true church in the book of Acts. And we talk about how we do it like they did. But we don't because we're not a movement. We're not scattering like we should. We're not seeking to spread the gospel the way that we should. Are you going to talk or are you going to fish? We don't need more programs. We don't need more strategies. We don't need more books about evangelism. We need each and every person who is a member of the Lord's church to make it their responsibility to share the gospel. Why don't we do that? Well, there's a few reasons. First of all, we think it's somebody else's job. I mean, let's be honest. Everybody thinks it's somebody else's job. You go on a, the Harding website or Oklahoma Christian website and they have job postings for churches. We assume that elders or a search committee put those job postings on there and they have a job description for the preacher. And some of them are this long. And you get to the end of it and you think, okay, well, what's everybody else going to do if that's what the preacher's doing, right? The preacher's doing everything. 
including Bible studies, including one-on-one evangelism. That's his job. And the people in the congregation, including the leadership, think, well, that's his job. It's not our job to evangelize. That's why we hired a preacher. But then have you also heard a preacher say something like, well, it's not my job to evangelize. That's your job. It's my job to preach the word. And so everybody else thinks it's somebody else's job. It's everybody's job. Everybody. The preacher, the elders, the deacons, the average member. It's everybody's job. We all have a responsibility to share the gospel. Evangelism doesn't boil down to just one person doing it for the entire congregation. It is all of our responsibility, including mine. I can't gripe about it if I'm not willing to do something about it. Secondly, we're not comfortable talking about the one that we claim to love. Isn't it funny how we can get all fired up about politics and we can go back and forth with somebody that we don't even know? I mean, we can, we can have a heated discussion about politics with a total stranger. Or we can pull out our wallet and we can show a picture of our kids or our grandkids or pull out our phone and show a picture of our kids or our grandkids to a total stranger that doesn't care anything about your kids or your grandkids. And we'll go on and on boring them to death about how great our kids or our grandkids are. But when it comes to talking about Jesus, we really struggle. I mean, we talk about Jesus being the one that we love, the one who has done so much for us, so why don't we talk about him naturally? Why doesn't that flow naturally? Maybe because it's so politically incorrect nowadays to talk about him. Maybe it's because we're afraid of what it might do to our relationship with someone else. But if we claim to love him so much, if our life revolves around him, if we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we are following him faithfully, then why should we not be willing to say anything and everything to anyone and anybody when the moment or opportunity presents itself? Here's something else. Through the years, I think we've done everything we could to distance ourselves from the world. We've stayed holed up in our ivory tower, if you will, and shut ourselves off from the world around us. We've taken a stance against everything immoral. And you know what? Sometimes avoidance is the best policy. Sometimes avoidance is the best practice. But remember, Jesus went to the dregs of society. Jesus dined with sinners. And so in our efforts, in our efforts to distance ourselves from the world around us, we have become so aloof from the world that we are not going to where the lost is. And if we don't go to where the lost are, then then how can we ever influence them? How can we ever impact them? My son, before the school year, this past school year, was nominated to be a, a FCA leader, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And that's not something he asked for. It's not something he signed up for. just something that somebody nominated for. And he came home and he asked me about it. He said, Dad, do you think I should do it? He was a little hesitant because he knew something about FCA. He knew about the organization at the school where he attends, and he knew that it was mostly made up of people that uh, were classmates that didn't share his views biblically. And so that concerned him, and he said, I I, I just don't know. I'm going to be the oddball in there. I mean, you know, um, they do some things that are different to me and sometimes even a little weird, and I I just don't know. What do you think I should do? And I said, son, I'm not going to tell you what you should do. I'm going to leave that up to you, but... I will say this, 
if you are constantly, as a Christian, removing yourselves from those situations, who's going to be the influence? If you are constantly deciding, I'm not going to be there, and I'm going to avoid those situations at all costs, how do you ever have any influence? How do you ever have an opportunity to share your faith with someone, right? A ministry of avoidance is what the Pharisees practiced. And you know how Jesus talked about them. We can't be scared of opportunities. We can't be afraid because, oh, it's too denominational or whatever. Maybe that's exactly where we need to be. Sharing the gospel. Being an influence on others. Let me tell you something, folks. I will go preach anywhere they ask me. Anywhere. Any church. Anywhere. If they ask me, I will go. And I will go there and I will be loving and compassionate as I share the gospel, as I share the truth of God's word. Because that's what Paul would have done and that's what any of us should be willing to do. It's taking advantage of an opportunity. If that's not right, then Paul was wrong by going to Mars Hill in the center of idolatry and preaching Jesus Christ. We should be willing to take advantage of those opportunities rather than avoid them. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I think one of our biggest problems is we don't feel it like Paul did. Do you notice what Paul is saying here? He's saying, I love the lost so much. I love evangelism so much, I'm willing to trade places if that's possible. Who would do that? Not me, I'll just be honest with you. I'm not willing to do that. Surely Paul's lying here. Surely Paul's not serious when he says, I wish that I were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, the kinsmen according to the flesh. But then he says in the beginning, I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. If I could do that and it meant greater good for the Lord's kingdom, then I would do it. My question to you is, where, where is the unceasing grief and the great sorrow for the lost? I don't think we feel it like Paul. Paul says in Acts 20 and 24, it says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's goal was to get to heaven and to take as many people with him as possible. Is that our goal? Do we make that a goal within our daily lives? He knew where he came from. Paul knew that he had been plucked from the fires of hell. That he was destined to spend eternity away from the Heavenly Father until he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it changed everything. And there are many of you who are sitting here this morning that have had a similar encounter. Not like Paul, but you've encountered Jesus. And it changed your life. It rocked your world to the point that you, that you had faith. And that faith moved you to repent and to confess and be immersed in the waters of baptism. Now you're walking a new creature in Christ. And you of all people should know what it's like to be plucked from the fires of hell. You of all people should know 
what it's like to be lost and then to be found. You of all people should have the most compassion and the most desire to see people turn from the world and turn to Jesus. Here's something that every time I read it, I pause and think about the implications for me and for all of us living in this day and age. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. It says, At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you have warned the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he will die. Since you have not warned him, he shall die in his sin, and his righteous deeds which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. However, if you have warned the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning, and you have delivered yourself. Let me simplify it for you. God tells this prophet Ezekiel, warn the people. Warn them of their wickedness, that they should turn from it and practice righteousness. And if you go and you warn them, and they don't turn, they will die in their sin. But your hands will be clean, because you did what you were supposed to do. But if you don't go and warn them, as I have told you to, and they don't turn from their iniquity, they're still going to die in their sins, but you're also going to have blood on your hands because I told you to do it and you didn't do it. I can't help but think about the implications for us today. We have been plucked from the fires of hell and God has given us a beautiful gift and a wonderful message that he makes very clear was intended to be shared with all those who are lost. Is there blood on our hands? Is he going to call us into account because we didn't share the message that he told us to proclaim? That scares me. I want to make certain that I'm doing the Lord's will in all things. And the Great Commission tells me that I am to go. That I'm to preach the gospel. That I'm to give that message that he has that so beautifully laid out for us in scripture. That I'm to tell that story to others. And if I don't, what does that mean for me? You see, the problem is we need to remember the mission. It's not our job to make the gospel acceptable. It's our job to make it accessible. You see, if you, if you preach the gospel, if you proclaim Christ and someone refuses to listen or turns away, that's not your fault. Maybe the way you presented it wasn't real good, and maybe you need to rethink your efforts. Like I've said before, if everyone in the world hates us, something's wrong. But if everyone in the world loves us, something's wrong too, probably. Because preaching the gospel, preaching the truth of God's word is going to cause some to love you and turn to Jesus and some to turn away. That's the way it was with Christ. That's the way it's going to be with us. We shouldn't expect anything different. 
But your job is not to make the gospel acceptable. Your job is to make it accessible. Like the prophet Ezekiel, our job is to proclaim the message. That's it. We proclaim that message, and if they still turn away, if they still refuse to come to Jesus, then that's on them. And as sad as that would be, as sad as it is to see someone choose lostness over righteousness, we've done what we're supposed to do. We're not graded by our success rate as far as how many quotas of people we can get in the baptistry. It's did you proclaim the message? Are you willing to present God's word? Are you willing to be invested in the mission? Remember Ephesians 2, 1 and 2? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Remember what you were before you became a Christian. You were dead. You weren't sick. You weren't ill. You were dead. And the mission is not about making bad people good. The mission is about making dead people live. And only one person can do that, and it's not you. Only Jesus is in the resurrection business. People are dead apart from Christ. We have the words of life. It's our job and our responsibility to present the words of life. But Jesus is the one who brings about resurrection. So we don't fail if we present the words to life, uh, of life and someone just chooses to stay dead. As sad as that is, we can't raise them anyway. But the worst thing that we can do is nothing. The worst thing we can do is nothing. You know, I was reminded of my Christian friends and ministers that have gone on mission trips to various places like in China where Christianity is illegal. One minister friend tells me of the time that he flew to China and he was picked up at the airport and taken to an undisclosed location, a very covert underground church service where he spoke for the mandatory 20 or 30 minutes and got done and wrapped everything up and they all said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm done. And they said, no, keep preaching. And he preached for hours on end, like eight hours taking breaks in between because they were just so hungry for the word of God. And he witnessed people that just had such a passion for the Lord and his church. They were on fire, even though they couldn't announce it, even though that they couldn't really advertise, at least in big and bold ways. It was underground. It was covert. They had to be secretive. One minister asked him, so where's the, where's the casual Christians? And one of the Asian brethren said, what do you mean? He said, well, surely you have people that only come on Easter and Sunday. Surely you have people here that are not real dedicated and only come once in a while. And the Asian bre brother responded, what, what would be the purpose of that? That was completely foreign to their thinking. And then the minister went on to tell them, well, you know, in America, we have buildings we call churches. And you come to that church building and you worship. And if you don't like the singing, you go to another church down the road. Or if you don't like the preaching, you go to another church down the road. Or if they don't have a lot of bells and whistles, you just go to another church down the road. And there's sometimes three or four churches within one city block. And you just pick the one that's to your liking. And the Asian brother responded with a hearty laugh. He said, that's ridiculous. Here, we worry about getting shot at. We worry about getting arrested for what we believe and spending time in prison. Let me ask you, which one of those two models looks more like the church in the book of Acts? 
not ours. I'm afraid we're really missing it, folks. We need to get back to who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be about. I don't know about you, but I do not want to be a congregation filled with satisfied customers. It's not my goal. I want to be sanctified cross-bearers. I want to be a people who are striving to live out the mission, mission-minded, Christ-focused. I love our gatherings. I love when we come together and we huddle together, but just like at a football game, you've got to break the huddle at some point. At some point, you've got to break the huddle and execute the game plan. Nobody goes to a football game to watch the team huddle. And I think God is sitting up in heaven going, when are you going to break the huddle? When are you going to run the play? When are you going to execute the game plan? I want to be a part of a movement again, don't you? Let's make that happen. If you have a need this morning that we can help you with, if you're not a child of God and you want to know more of what that looks like, we'd love to set up a Bible study with you. Perhaps you've been studying and you'd like to put on Christ in baptism this morning. Or perhaps you're someone who did that long ago and you veered off track. Maybe you found yourself distanced from God. Maybe you need the prayers and support of this church family. Maybe you need to do a U-turn this morning. Don's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you in any way, come now as we stand and as we sing.